You're about to listen to a Second City Works presentation brought to you in partnership with WGN Radio. Subscribe on your favorite podcast streaming platform or listen on WGNRadio.com and be sure to share. The Second City is back open for live shows, classes, and customized corporate workshops and events. But we also have all those things available in virtual formats. For more information, go to secondcity.com. Second City is excited to work with Amazon as part of their new and exciting app called AMP. AMP is a home where anyone can create live radio-style shows alongside some of the biggest names in the entertainment industry, including ours. Join the Second City live every Thursday at 5 p.m. Central Time for our show, Second City Public Radio. SCPR is an interactive weekly lampoon of all things public radio. Each week, our host and an ever-expanding panel of Second City characters open up the lines to listeners from around the U.S. to ask questions and offer us opinions on a slew of wide-reaching subjects. Download the app, and don't forget to tune in, AMP, Thursdays at 5 p.m. Central Time. Well, this is a fun podcast. Uh, I'm talking to my friends, Scott Barry Kaufman and Jordan Feingold. Uh, this is Scotty's third visit to the podcast. He's a cognitive scientist and humanistic psychologist who has written a slew of excellent books. And Dr. Jordan Feingold is a physician and well-being researcher. She is a founder of the emerging field of positive medicine. And she's also a former student of Scott's. And they've co-written a new book. It's called Choose Growth, a workbook for transcending trauma, fear, and self-doubt. Enjoy the pod. The Second City is a world-famous comedy theater, and it got so famous because it has produced generation after generation of comedy superstars. That didn't happen by magic. Second City's improvisational pedagogy fuels great performance, and the same practices that made stars of everyone from Bill Murray to Tina Fey can be applied for success offstage, at work, at home, and in the world. I'm Kelly Leonard, Executive Director of Insights and Applied Improvisation at The Second City. This podcast is about collaborative conversations, seeking connections, and finding a better way. This is Getting the Yes And. Days can be counted by the money spent. Today was just another better left unsaid. Days can be counted by the time to rent. Tomorrow's just another like the one that comes next. The corner of the highway that leads to the job at the desk by the boss with the elegant watch. The tick of the clock and the tick of the clock mark the moments till the ticking stops. Scott and Jordan, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having us. So delighted to be here. So you quote the existential psychotherapist Irving Yalom in the book, and this line like literally shook me. He says, quote, sooner or later, you have to give up the hope for a better past, end quote. I want to start with that. And this entire podcast could be about that quote. Yeah. Well, that that quote really gets at the core of um, an assumption um, that those have on the path to post-traumatic growth. Uh, it's a real core assumption, um, which is that you can't change the past, which is a fair assumption from terms of how we, what we know about quantum physics and, um, <laughs> and, and, and various things about reality. Um, facing reality can be really, really difficult and painful. Um, and we don't want to change necessarily. Well, we, we're not saying we want to change uh, that, that we, that we, um, if we, if we could change things, we wouldn't want to go back. You know, because mm-hmm. for 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 many of us in many of our situations, if we could choose, we'd be like, oh yeah, like uh, I would uh, rather that person, you know, not have died or whatever. Um, you know, so but instead, what we do is we just accept that things are the way they are, um, and we say, well, what amazing sort of um, growth potential is there moving forward? Yeah, Jordan, when when you listen to that quote, what what comes to mind for you? So this quote also penetrated my soul when I came across it because so much of us have so, so many humans have just existential suffering, wishing that time could move in the backwards direction that we could relive experiences. And a lot of the critic criticism of post-traumatic growth as a concept is that some is that there may be baked in for some people this assumption that we need traumatic experiences right. in order to grow and of course that's not true we can grow from deeply positive experiences as well we talk about the research on post ecstatic growth and 
the idea is not that we're saying go seek out opportunities to be traumatized. The idea is that these things happen. They are part of the human experience. Suffering is an inevitable part of what it means to be human. And the idea that we we can't time moves in one direction as we perceive mm-hmm. it, and it would behoove us to recognize that we we have a choice to move with it. Yeah. I, so when I I posted that. Uh, line on Twitter and LinkedIn. I got, I got huge reaction to it and actually brought it into a therapy session with my therapist. And it was really, I don't know, it's like a great, it's almost like a line of poetry in the sense that it serves through um, my stuff in, in terms of, okay, like the, the, the you know, in improv, we, we teach people to be fiercely present in the moment. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and then you recognize that, that, you know, I was sort of early to recognize that a lot of people take classes here because they're broken in some way mm-hmm. and they, they find the improv experience uh, centers them. <laughs> and, and I think a similar thing is happening here, which is like, you, you can't, cha- you can't change it. And so, it, you know, and that doesn't mean you don't recognize it. It doesn't mean it doesn't hurt, but if you can sort of be in that sort of present space, there are so many opportunities for a life well-lived. Um, Right. Yeah. It, yes. Very much so. And and so many people really um, are committed have have uh, committed themselves unconsciously or consciously to living in their past, um, and and for uh, let and uh, allowing uh, their present moment to be hundred percent contaminated by their past. And I don't think a lot of people realize they have a choice. Right. right. Or or that they can even change and yeah, right and grow. Yeah. Some people think, yeah, you know, I, I'm in the second half of my life. Growth is for young folk. And, I, you know, I, I'm too set in my ways. I hear this all the time. I can't. I can't. There's so much resistance to the notion of changing. And I think another yes and that is so baked into our work and into our philosophy is this idea of acceptance, yeah. that we can accept ourselves where we are for our imperfections and our stubbornness. And we can commit to change, that these things are not mutually exclusive, that accepting where we are does not mean that we cannot open ourselves to growth. Yeah. Kelly, Kelly can, can I tell you something real quick about yeah. Jordan? Yeah. yeah. Um, ever since uh, Jordan discovered your uh, groundbreaking work on Yes End, she's been uh, obsessed and, and every conversation we have, like she like even emphasizes the word end. Like I know she like she doesn't mm-hmm. just say it, she actually emphasizes it. She'll like yeah. be like, yes, Scott, and you know, and, and <laughs> like, all of our conversations like are like are like always about that now. Like I feel like that's the, the core theme of our uh our friendship is uh is yes ending. So you you've really trained you've really t- you've re- upgraded our our already amazing friendship that we had and collaboration. I love it. Well, the and is the important word there. That the and is doing all the work. And yes. um, you know, and That's I know, true. I know, That's true. I know my, my wife likes to undermine uh yes and by saying it's really about explore and heighten, is what mm. she likes to say. I'm like, please, no, like stop undermining my work. Uh, <laughs> That's but, so but, funny. But, you too. I know. That wasn't very yes end of you. <laughs> yeah, but her her point being, and yeah. I mean I'm sure you see this, which is like people use yes and to uh, do their no but behavior. Mm. So, well, yes, and let's do it my way. It's like, no, 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 that's not the purpose of it. And so when Anne teaches it, she she moves quickly to explore and heighten, being yeah. the idea of like, no, ju- you, you know, you can't be creative if you're in judgment of self or others. And so if you can be in that space where um, uh, let's explore together, let's heighten together um, to a certain degree, and then you you st- then you can stop and analyze. It's like it's not it's not at, you, it's not that you don't analyze. And I think one mm. of the things that I loved about this book too is we live in a world that is really not interested in nuance, mm. and yeah, I your agree. work necessitates nuance. Yeah, it necessitates this thing of like, no, the suffering is real. Um, mm. And there is, there's the end, and there is the, the opportunity. Actually, before we jump in that, Scott, I know you talked about this before on the pod, but um, your work around Maslow and the hierarchy are needs, I think most people are really stuck on the pyramid. Uh, so that that wasn't him, right? The pyramid? That's right. He never drew a pyramid. Um, and uh, it was actually some early, quite sexist uh, management textbook sketches that had the self-realized man at the top of with the flagpole. Um, you know, you know, just sort of like this sort of like management way of thinking in the sixties, um, you know, of hierarchy, hierarchical, you know, like it's all about, um, making the money 
and and getting and stepping over others on the way to the top is so uh, so opposite um, of how Maslow thought of self-actualization. I mean, he started his his idea of self-actualization by by starting something called the Good Human Being Notebook, the GHB mm. Notebook. He just simply um, was trying to observe who are the best specimens of humanity? Like who are the wow. good, who are good, the best people, good people. So really when he was thinking of self-actualization, he wasn't thinking about it in terms of achievement. He was thinking about it in terms of a, being a good human. And, mm. and, and I, with all due humility, have been trying to get that notion in the public consciousness that like, no, like self-action. That's why I care about self-action. You don't see me. I'm like all going around like, hi, I'm a high performance expert. Do you know? Right. No, I'm a right. self-actualization expert. And that's what I am. <laughs> and mm-hmm. I want to it, put more in society the notion that there are that being a good human being is a good thing to be. <laughs> mm-hmm. I just feel like that's got lost in our culture. You know, don't get me started on this. You can tell I, I, mm-hmm. you can't shut me up. But I don't feel like that's in our culture consciousness. I feel like our cultural consciousness right now is like, well, happiness or achievement, um, high performance, uh, you know, uh, but I don't know where is like being a good human being. And just yeah. for its own sake, not even in pursuit of any of those that's other right. things. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Because well, you won't see that in, in yeah, pursuit. What, what, you, what you hope is that it's reflexive, right? That, 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 that's what you, what you hope is that like everyone's walking with good intention and but but i've been in rooms where people are like that's even a trigger to say say like you know let's assume good intent or like well that's a trigger mm-hmm. and, and like i understand a little bit of what like any, any of this stuff can be weaponized you know mm-hmm. it, it, it's not a superpower unless it can be used for evil is something i say all the time and that's true of yes and that's true true of any of this stuff mm-hmm. one of the things that i thought was interesting jordan i want to get your take on this is is this you, you say in the book quote Growth isn't just a mental process that exists above our necks. It is a whole person experience demanding that we attune to our bodies in relationship with other minds and bodies around us, end quote. This is an area that I am so fascinated in from Andy Murphy Paul's work uh, and and others in terms of embodied. I'm doing EMDR now in in therapy. So talk to us about this, this sort of embodied aspect. Totally. So I'm a physician and primarily my, the work that doctors do with the exception of psychiatrists, which I'm training to be a psychiatrist perhaps for this reason is to focus on the body and not only to focus on the body, but to focus on various organ systems in sort of their distinct houses. So we have gastroenterologists for the digestive tract. We have cardiologists for the heart and pulmonologists for the lung, et cetera, et cetera. So we exist in a society where not only are the mind and body considered separate entities, but even organ systems are treated and examined separately from one another. And this all goes back, as far as I'm aware, to the 17th century, to Rene Descartes and the separation of the mind and body, which had impl- religious implications. Right. He basically said the soul does not live exist inside the body, so that if we begin to do things like surgery and autopsies to examine internal organs, that has no consequence for the afterlife for the human soul. And then enter this westernized system where we don't consider that the mind and the body are connected. And of course, we know that is absolutely untrue that there are deep connections between our minds, our mental states, and our our human physiology. And if we are going to grow as whole people, we need to recognize those relationships between what's going on inside of us when our heart is beating what is that telling us when we realize that our breath has increased in, in pace, that perhaps something's going on in our mind and vice versa, that oftentimes great sources of anxiety we experience are around our physical states, feeling ill, worrying about our health, and that there are these potent bidirectional relationships that even within our healthcare system, we are not accounting for. And I think this, I had this real aha moment when I was reading Resma Menachem's My Grandmother's Hands a few years mm-hmm. ago. I don't know if either of you are familiar with this work, but the idea of inherited trauma, that if we just focus on our thoughts and healing trauma it, only with you know, conventional psychotherapeutic techniques without taking into account the body, we're missing an entire opportunity. So, so much of the trauma is actually in our body. It's epigenetic modifications of the way our genes are expressed throughout every cell in our body. 
um, that the trauma of our ancestors actually can be inherited and exist within our bodies and cause disease states. So I think at its most core fundamental um, sort of essence, what we're trying to do is help people attune to the, the connections between their minds and their bodies, how stress shows up in their bodies, um, how we can utilize things like physical activity to help with our mental states. And eventually, you know, and beyond the, beyond our book, I think we need to totally reintegrate our, our healthcare system and the way we think about yeah. these things so that um, we, we consider these complex relationships and, um, can intervene accordingly. Scott, I'm curious. You can see why she's the best student I've ever had. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I like. I'm curious because I know you've always been a comedy fan, and and I wonder does yeah. that come from laughter first in terms of the way that that factors into your body and recognizing? Because Ooh, I sort of, when I look at this now, I'm like, did I get into this because I was trying to heal myself? Mm. What a fascinating question. Why do I love? comedy so much i um and i wonder am, am i is, is the ultimate is this am i seeking that feeling of laughter um it could be you know i've never reflected on that before but it could i haven't either could I, I just, it it just sort of came to me like because yeah. like we all have our traumas and we all like you have yeah. i've had it and and i still have it <laughs> I still have so it. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah there's something about taking um, uh, taking very um upsetting things and laughing about like I just did, like I just did. Yeah, yeah. Something about that 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 lifts my soul up. Hmm. What's so interesting, humor is one of our mature defense mechanisms, which we talk about in psychotherapy, that humor is one of the best ways that we can process and make sense of the world around us when right. things are it truly incomprehensible splitting and seeing the world in black and white terms is what is we term an, an immature defense it's a way of also simplifying and making sense of the world but in a way that is very reductive and removes those gray areas so it's interesting to juxtapose uh humor and laughter and this uh, recognizing the absurdities as sort of a mature way of processing and and the black and white dualistic uh, tendency to to simplify our world as a, a contrasting phenomenon. Yeah, I've always thought it. Oh, go sorry, ahead. go. No, I was going to say that the, the the I don't know who 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 actually did this quote, but it's the the shortest distance between two people is a laugh. Mm. And mm. and I and I and I feel like that's the leap to to connection, which is something yeah. you talk about yes. in the book, which is, which is this is a, that's another thing of like the magic of being like at the second city. Something's funny. 300 people are all laughing at the same time. Yes. What an incredible gift. What a magic trick. Well, and then, uh, yes, and, and um, it feels like uh, the, the, the shortest distance to hate is people yeah. laughing at someone. A, a, a thousand percent. I just Trump wanted is, to end Trump's that. A, yeah. Trump's a comedian. Yeah. I, 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 yeah. like, he, uses, he uses comedy all the time. I mean, it, it, yeah. it's like, it's comedy of derision. He uses and a weapon. Of, yeah, it's yeah. a weapon. It's it's making out groups rather than well, it's, it's yeah. making an in group of you know people who are you know trying to out other people. Because um, I, I, you know, I'm thinking about something very in particular in my mind. I don't know if we want to open this can of worms, but I, um, I uh, don't, I don't hate many things in this world. I tend to have love, but I hate the the libs of TikTok uh, t- Twitter account, and I'm glad that when they're banned, their whole thing is using comedy to make fun of yeah. um, people, you know, the left leftists on 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 TikTok, and uh, it, it's just straight up bullying. Um, yeah. But I just think that's a really good example of of how that can be weaponized. Yeah. I mean, you spend a good deal. <laughs> you're, you are like, oh god, what's the what's the analogy? What am I like? Please tell me. <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm, you're, you're, you are, tr- you're on a quest on Twitter, and you're not gonna, yeah. you're not gonna find it. Like, it is, it is a fool's quest. But I love that you're on it, which is really trying to like not take sides, try yeah. to see the best in everyone. That's true. And you've worked, you've worked specifically with some complicated characters. I'll, I'm being very generous in terms of that in your academic career. Um, yeah. and, yeah. and I, I wonder, like, I don't see any signs of you giving up and Jordan, I actually want your up. point of view on this before I go back to Scotty. Like, it's like, I am cheering you on, but at the same time, I'm also going like, Oh, Scott, Fut- futile. This is futile. <laughs> <laughs> well, 
being being Scott's dear friend and fortunately his collaborator all these years, I think Scott also has a true intolerance for inauthenticity. And I think when both within himself and he can detect it in other people. And I think when he sees people just being authentically themselves and, and being in this world based on their own experiences, I I think he can meet people where they're at, regardless of whether he necessarily agrees with their opinion. And I think his quest to to truly meet the world with unconditional positive regard is Mm -hmm. so authentic to him that, you know, that's what we're seeing. He really, I, I don't know, Scott, what do you think? Well, no, um, and, I, and if this is getting us too far astray, then please, please no, let me know. Good. But um, yeah, the idea of um, like I wake up every morning committed to meeting everyone with unconditional positive regard, whoever they are and whatever their belief system, is one that you know, like uh, it, it's hard <laughs> because um, it, it's even harder when I get social pressures to not do that. So, um, I get social pressures like, no, um, you should hate that person or no, you, you know, no, like what, you know, why would you even, why would you even talk to, to someone that, that disagrees with what I think, you know? And I'm like, well, you didn't even ask me what I think. Yeah. <laughs> what the world revolves around you. <laughs> yeah. But anyway, um, I hate the, that there's so many social pressures to, not have unconditional positive regard that it's hard. Like I feel like existential quandaries when I'm like, when I'm, when I'm trying to have unconditional positive regard, I'm getting so many social pressures to not be who I, what comes so naturally to me. I don't know if that makes sense. <laughs> no, it, it, it does. I mean, it, it's also, it's, it's impossible in, in the sense yeah. that, you know, um, John Lennon, I love the Beatles. I love the Beatles. Mm. John Lennon, not good to women, apparently, right? I mean, like, that right? do, I not, do I not listen to Imagine? Do I, you know, like, and and so we have all these artists that we we know, you know com- especially in comedy. I mean, Richard Pryor, there, there's just, mm-hmm. the list is a- endless. And mm-hmm. it's, you know, my, my wife who, who runs, as you know, a comedy program, she's constantly having to adjust, adjust because like one of the most important black comedians was Bill Cosby. Mm-hmm. Does she teach Bill Cosby? Does she teach Woody Allen? I mean, like, and she has to give a a, a warning before she shows an episode of the honeymooners to say like, mm-hmm. he's not going to hit her, you know? So, so this it, it's, it's really tricky because then you're playing with history and norms and what society was and looking at, you know, uh, past decades through 2022 eyes. Um, mm-hmm. So I, I think what you're calling for is a bit of grace and humility, um, which mm-hmm. I think everyone could use. Um, and unfortunately it's, it, it just feels like it's in short supply, especially like specifically this week on Twitter. I, um, I agree. Um, I don't, by the way, I want to say, um, I, I don't have tolerance for assholes. Yeah. Um, and that is true. Like, I'm not like a pushover. Don't, you know, like, let's be honest, let, let's, uh, mm-hmm. let's get, not get it twisted. Um, uh, but grace and humility, that's right. Exactly. The way, the, the thing is I'm willing to hear people out. I'm, I'm willing to not immediately jump to that that person's an asshole just because of what group they belong to or what, um, the way they look or the way they act, not the way they act. Sometimes if you act like an asshole, you're an asshole, but you know, there's just a whole bunch of things where we pre, we jump and prejudge people. Yeah. That's all I'm saying. Um, but I do have a no asshole policy. That is true. Like, you know, like I'll hear you out, whatever, but if it gets to a point where it's like, you are like legit a card carrying asshole. Then I'm like, okay, <laughs> what else? I'm done. <laughs> well, you, you, you believe people when they tell you who they are, you know? Yeah. Yeah. You, you have to at some point. I'm yeah. curious. This is something I wanted to ask you. It, it not related to the book, but re- related to other, other things that are connected to the book. I was listening to a podcast uh, and it was with Bruce Daisley, who's been on the pod, very smart guy. And mm. he was kind of challenging uh, growth mindset. In terms of uh, that, that he he said basically that work Dweck's work hasn't been replicated outside. He was kind of challenging grit, um, uh, uh, as well as well. No, no, that's the right. foundation of positive psychology. <laughs> so, so no, so I'm cu- I'm curious, and, and and this was leading to sort of, um, uh, so, uh, and I think he's right in terms of a lot of resilience training is not great. I've, I've seen that in terms of because you know we, we sort of border on some of that. And mm-hmm. actually, the the research he was citing was when people have a sense of control is mm-hmm. is more of the 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 findings that are going. So I'm just kind of curious in that world. Have you heard those things, and what's your take? Who 
Oh, boy. You know, you're good at opening up cans. <laughs> hey, man. <laughs> Did you know that? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, what Jordan knows, I have a million thoughts about growth mindset. Um, well, one of the things I want to say, uh, I, I had Carol Dweck um, and I, on my podcast, and it was a very special opportunity because she's rarely does podcasts. And no, she I wouldn't wanna, do mine. Yeah. Um, yeah. And that's a big deal, you know, mm-hmm. like that she wouldn't do yours. Um, she she rarely does podcasts, but she did mine. And um, and to her credit, I wanted to start off with all the, to her credits. Yeah. She listened to all the criticisms that I, I, I put forward and amassed lots of data that from and other people's criticisms because I knew she did rarely does podcasts. So I was like, I felt pressure to be the voice of lots of different people. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I presented it all to her and, um, she, um, just responded with grace and humility, right? The two, awesome. I love those two things. And she yeah. did, and she yeah. did that. She did that. So I want to, I think she's a wonderful human. And I think she's a good scientist. Um, but I think that um, when you study something like 20, 30 years, it starts to become so core to your identity mm-hmm. that I feel like at a certain point, you can't even bear the thought that maybe some of the effects aren't as strong as you as because it's so strong in your identity that when you see an effect size that isn't that strong, it's like you still interpret it as strong. You know, right. I mean, I, I had I did have a moment where I it was a very poignant moment. Um, I was like. I read, I said, okay, well, look, this effect size of this meta-analysis, it really comes down to, we're talking about like 0.20, you know, we're really talking about, you know, yeah, there's an effect, but let's, you know, it's, it looks like it's a, a weak to moderate at best effect. Mm-hmm. Um, do you still stand by the statement? And I quoted her saying that growth mindset is the strongest thing, you know, in the world we could ever imagine or something. And she said, yes, I still stand by that. And that was a poignant moment for me because I, I, I presented the data, you know, and she's yeah. like, yeah, I agree with the data, but no, I still stand by that statement. So I think that it can be problematic when scientists sometimes get a little too invested in their, in their constructs. Um, and another thing I want to say real quickly, um, uh, is that I, I've been trying to, uh, and I, Jordan and I are creating a coaching program called self-actualization coaching mm-hmm. that we're super excited about. And one of the main tenets is it's not about growth mindset. It's about growth motivation. Mm-hmm. Um, and we see a difference between the two. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, growth motivation is more Maslowian, uh, a Maslow idea where you are motivated um, as your whole being to yeah. engage in tasks and things that help you grow. A growth mindset, you can apply to things that aren't growth oriented for you. And that's the problem with growth mindset is you can have a whole bunch of kids who are they all have the growth mindset to get good SAT scores um, and totally leave out how they could have applied their growth mindset to lots of other goals and things that could have been even more valuable for their self-actualization than, uh, you know, or getting into Harvard, you know, like the, they're like, Oh, look, I used my growth mindset again at Harvard. So like, okay, congrats. You know, like, is that the best thing for, what is that? So what? <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Do you know what, does that make sense? Oh, yeah. of course. Jordan, what do you like this area? Resilience, grit, growth mindset. Yeah. What- so I, two more caveats to that is that we, there are no value value and morality is not implicit in any of these constructs. So mm-hmm. we can, as Scott's saying, we could be have a growth mindset and be really gritty about something that may or may not actually be the right goal for us. Mm-hmm. Um, and it could be actually something that's quite harmful for the world. You could be gritty about being a serial killer. <laughs> we, okay. we, yeah, it is a lot of is, them are gritty about a lot of them are real gritty. Yeah. So um it is bereft of a context uh and or it's bereft of a morality. And I think that for science, and I, I was at the positive psychology conference this past weekend and hearing Marty Seligman's personal remarks about where the field is and there was a lot of I pushback. heard you gave a kick ass talk there. Thank you. Thank Everyone's you. I, I gave a talk. Me. Everyone's been oh. texting me. Yeah. <laughs> So I I tried to absorb so much. And I think one of the things that Marty said that I think is incredibly salient and why he's been such an excellent scientific leader of the field is that when we have a morality or we bring a political agenda, as Scott is saying, when we're too attached to these ideas, it can really taint the, the science and the way that we view the results. And we know that positive interventions, these the resilience trainings, they, they do have small to moderate effect sizes. They're not, you know, I, I think what Marty was saying, he's really excited about the promise of psychedelic research and psilocybin because these studies have large effect, moderate to large effect sizes in enhancing. That interesting. Like, that, yeah. that, that has, I like 16 year old Kelly would have been real excited about this. <laughs> 
<laughs> it's a very exciting uh, frontier in our in our field. And the 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 other point, and you mentioned having control and agency. That's yeah, actually yeah. the the field of work that Marty's been studying for the last three years, and will continue to do for two years. Is looking at. And I hope it's okay that I'm sharing this. I think he's fairly public about this, but that he's looking at human hum, human history and the most progress in human society has been when humans have had the most agency, a belief that they can make change in society. And, and I, I see it on an individual level with patients. I see it with my colleagues. I see it with medical students I work with. When, when folks don't believe that what they do matters, there's a lot of helplessness. There is a default to, to just let things happen. And there's a real passivity there. So, um, yeah, I I think (laughs) the, the, I think, I think agency is a really important and hopefully soon will not be overlooked piece of this, of this puzzle. And I think the, the amorality of these constructs is important to think about. I love everything you just said there, Jordan. I'd like to guess on that. I've also been thinking about the construct of toxic agency because uh, that's something I, I maybe want to write an article about. No one's ever used mm-hmm. that phrase. They talk about toxic positivity, yeah. but I think there's toxic agency though as well. And and that's this notion um, that, well, everything's in our control and mm. that the environment doesn't matter and that um, it can go too far in the other direction. Yeah. You know, where you see people... Um, you see people on Instagram, you know, like these influencers, the self-help people saying like, oh, you know, like you got, you know, this trauma or whatever, like just, you know, it's all in your, it's all in your head, you know, just um, be. Yeah. Mm. And, and so I, um, I wanted to guess and what you said and, 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 uh, and, uh, and make sure that like, even with Marty's mission, like, you know, one of the criticisms I've had is he tends to not fo- pay attention much to systemic injustices <laughs> in right, positive right, psychology. Right, right. Can I yeah. say that with all due respect for Martin Seligman, but still say, I sure. think that's something that's still wildly lacking from the field of positive psychology. Mm-hmm. So I uh, wanted to yes end that. I mean, the other thing that I think of when we're circling around this topic is uh, something per- personally for me, but also I see as a phenomenon is, you know, identity threat, you know, the, 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 yes, I was just thinking about that. So mm-hmm. powerful. And, and, you know, I, I yes. literally, you know, I'm in like, I'm in a great space at, at, at my job right now. And I've got, I've got like this new boss and, and he's, he's terrific. And like, I'm, I'm being, I feel valued. I feel like my, my work and, and literally my, my therapist is like, you're walking in like a different human. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm, and then I realized I'm like, oh yeah, because like, I really, there was a, p- p- a period of time where I really questioned my identity. I'm so tied to this brand, right? I've been mm-hmm. here uh, 34 years. Mm. And so, but, you know, the, the last few have been tough. I mean, we were going through the, the social justice crisis and, you know, the mm. COVID and all that stuff. And so it's, um, I just think that that for, 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 I see that when I see a person in crisis, often that's what I'm seeing identity mm. threat. It's so amazing. I was just thinking about this this morning. <laughs> yeah. Talk to, so what were you, what was the context in which you were thinking about it? Mind meld, mind meld mm-hmm. over here. I'm I, unbelievable. I was literally, I was literally, I was making my coffee actually before this interview. And I was thinking to myself, uh, you know, I feel like identity threat is such a important um, explanation of so many of the fighting we see, I see on Twitter, because I've been trying to make sense of the phenomenon of, of just, there's just pervasive fighting on Twitter. And yes. I don't, can't wrap my head around why people are so committed to fighting with each other. Um, and identity threat, I, I was like, I think that's the thing. I think everyone, everyone is poking everyone, everyone else's buttons, uh, and what they're poking is identity, you know, yep. all, all around, you know, in every which yep. way, you know, this is my tribe. So I've got, yeah. I got to fall in yeah. line. This is my tribe. That's yeah. why it's so interesting what you do, because it's like, it's, it's in many ways, you're tribe less, um, yeah. because only, <laughs> yeah, because they're, they're that, that you know, that's a lonesome pr- pursuit. God bless that you're doing it. What, yeah. what what I chose to do, and I think I, I think we might have exchanged on this, is I simply don't engage with any negative content. That is what I stopped doing. Mm. Now I saw that, yeah. That that and and that has been very good for me. Um and, mm. and I but I honestly I'll get on there and I'll start to respond. I'm like, nope, this is my new my new rule. Like good no, for you. Don't engage. It changes Hard. the algorithm as you noticed. It changes it, your algorithm. Yeah. It does. But what's interesting 
is I'm getting a lot more what I'll call right-wing content showing up in my feed. Oh my gosh. I'm, yeah, I, I'm I can sure, kind of like, see why is, that would happen. Yeah. How, why am I getting diamond and silk tweets? Like, like I don't follow them. I don't engage with that content. So my neutrality is showing up right, mm. which disturbs me, not just because I'm left, but just as a human being in terms of wanting, I want to kind of do mm. what you're doing, Scott. I want to engage with all kinds of humans and, and I want to see the good in that. But also, it's not a fair fight. There's not a fair fight. Um, and that is also that when you talk about hey. s- systemic issues, you, you know, you have to take that into cons- consideration, too. It's hard. And I engage like you. that, period. Oh, no, I'm totally off. I, I'm on Twitter, but I'm not on, I'm, I'm not engaging in Twitter. And as a clinician, it's very different because... I yes, I'm an author, and I I suppose in that sense I'm in sort of a public sphere, and I'm also a psychiatrist. And patients come to me with all sorts of problems, and knowing my political views, knowing sort of my predilections in these spaces, is not therapeutic for them. And so I have to maintain a really neutral stance for the sake of my my role as a clinician. I think you're lucky. I- I re- you're lucky, and I and I respect that. Um, but I would push back, in a sense, uh, Kelly. Or maybe I'd yes end this. Uh, is, is it really? Is it is it neutral? Y- you are you're taking no a stance against negative engaging with negative content. Period. So, yeah. So you are. I want to give you a little bit more credit than you gave yourself there, because I don't okay. think that's neutrality. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not neutral in the sense that. Um, uh, I have a certain set of values, um, and I apply those values universally uh, what what i see a lot of and i have some criticism of oh gosh forbid i have some criticism of the left that um uh you oh, know like, like well, you're not allowed to like ever have some criticism of your own tribes and things right. but anyway um uh i have you know some criticism i see i don't see values being applied universally i see um it you know we care for tolerance love and everything but like as long as you're in our tribe Mm-hmm. <laughs> that's right and and so what what i my 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 if i had to be explicit about it is that i have a certain list of values that matter to me and i don't discriminate in how i apply them based on uh what group you're in so so i'm not neutral in that sense i don't tolerate hate that's right and i don't like i don't tolerate hate among the left i don't tolerate hate when i see it among the right yeah. and so that is that neutrality or is that no, no i think you're right you it's not saying? neutrality I mean, I mean, look, the, the, the ethics are not in fashion. Yeah. And, 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 and I know as I've aged, ethics is something that's very important to me now, way mm. more important than it was 10, 15, 20 years ago. And I think mm. that's part of the aging process, but it's also the part of the trauma process. It's like trying mm. to make meaning of, of these things that, that have happened. Mm. Um, and then you realize like, no, like I, I want to be the most moral ethical person I can be. Um, yeah. And then recognizing, of course, to do that 100% is not just impossible. You probably, you know, you, it's, it, it's really hard. It's, it's really, not fun. <laughs> no, doing the right thing, but doing the right thing across the board not fun. is very hard. I mean, you yeah. say in the book, like one of your first things um, in the book is you say, it's not easy being a human. And yet here we are. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. It is like, like, let's double click yeah. on this. Yeah. It's effing hard. Yeah. Yeah. Every aspect of it. Yeah. Totally. Totally. Um, totally. I, I and I uh and I don't like moral superiority either. Like I don't know anything I'm saying as like I'm saying like, oh, I'm the one right way of being and yeah, all no, these no. Uh, you know, that uh, I don't believe in moral superiority. I in fact I see a lot of the uh, causes of the fighting is people thinking that their moral system's the the way, the only high way. You know, the way of the highway, but, uh, no, it's dip. So I'm not perfect. <laughs> not any stretch of the imagination, but I, um, it's, it is hard. It is hard being human. And, um, and what I, I find it particularly challenging though, um, applying my values universally. And it's something I'm committed to, but I find it really hard because there are a lot of pressures against that to pick a side and stay on that side. That's right. Um, as opposed to viewing things as they come in on a case by case basis. Yeah. That's you know right. what I mean? Yeah. I do. I do. Um, I wanted to, I, I, I wrote down, <clears throat> uh, you say in the book, not toxic positivity, uh, but you talk about Frankel's tragic optimism. Um, uh, t- talk to us about 
Yeah, talk to us about what that is. You're really hitting, you're really hitting, this interview is hitting well. Uh, okay, same for you, Jordan. Like, mm-hmm. like it's really I, hitting. I love that we are talking about concepts yeah. that I spend a lot of time thinking about and no one, sorting no one through. Talks but, to about yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. I actually, the reason, the reason I bring this up is I was on someone else's podcast yesterday. And one of the pre-questions they gave me was, if you could spend two hours of your time with anyone living or, or, or dead, who would it be? And I and I said Victor Frankel. And these people mm. were coming at me because they were like, yeah, I'm going to have the comic guy on, the funny guy. And I'm like, it's not a funny person? I'm like, I, is Victor Frankel not funny? We don't know that. Maybe I find out he's a cut up. Mm. I bet he was funny. There's no way funny. this guy did not have funny. an... Exactly. He must have had an amazing sense of humor. I, I think I would have... Cho- what is it? I think I would have chosen Maslow if I of could. Of course you would have. That's of like, course. Like, obviously. Um, but um, the idea of tragic optimism is, 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 is really profound because it says that well, we can find um, an optimistic way to grow or something to learn and even the most dire circumstances. And we, well, and, and I guess in, in the Frank Victor Frankel word uh, wording, we could find meaning yeah. in even the most difficult of circumstances, but I want to extend it beyond meaning. I want to extend it to joy, to laughter, to humor. Mm-hmm. You can find the humor in the, in the, in the most terrible of situations um, um, in a way that um, gives you hope. You know, tragic optimism. I think I think hope is maybe a, a really core um, core concept there as well. You know what might encompass all of that is flourishing. Maybe, maybe, maybe. I'm not a big fan of the word flourishing, to be honest. Tell me why. <laughs> Tell me why. Because the, it feels fake. The word flourish is like the definition of flourish is that it's something fake. It, it's you add it. You add an extra flourish. I'm all about being really? raw, raw being then adding flourishes to our existence. So I've always been resistant to the, the word, the notion of flourishing, because it doesn't seem to be in line with my values. <laughs> I get it. I get it. That's interesting. I didn't know that. I Because I, I keep trying to look for the word that encompasses all the stuff you're talking about. Being. Um, yeah, yeah. Self-actualization. Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah. Mm. I always loved the word thriving to really thrive. Mm. And I... It's also been so co-opted. It's like, I think some of these terms that we've come to really know and have precise definitions of things like mindfulness have sort of, when when they become popularized and they become sort of bastardized and people use them and throw them around in ways that are not, do not mean what we think they mean. And I love Marty Seligman's definition of flourishing that Mm. he posed in his book, Flourish. And I agree that sometimes we, we start to use these concepts in popular, you know, just discussions, which is, I think ultimately a good thing, but they lose their original context and and definitions. Definitely Jordan. And I, I can be guilty of wanting to be too poetic in my language that um, people are like, what the hell does that mean? Like, for instance, in our coaching program that we developed, like it, I, I say it, our program is unique because it's about pure being. And yeah. I, I, and I like the, the concept of pure being. And that's really what I'm trying to get at. Um, yeah. And flourishing feels like not the same thing as pure being. Um, but then people are like, okay, what the hell does that mean? Right. <laughs> yeah. And, well, and- <laughs> words are important. Me- metaphors are important, especially when, 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 cause we start to think we start to as- assign meaning that maybe isn't there. And it was very interesting. I had this conversation with my friend, Neil, who used to run the uh, IDO office in Chicago. I love Neil. I love yeah. Neil. Oh yeah. You know, Neil. Yeah, so, you introduced me to him, I believe. Yeah, yeah. So we were, we had this conversation where he was sort of, bemoaning design thinking as, as like, the, and, and basically the, the idea, the central idea in this conversation was that once something gets coined, mm-hmm. it inevitably will fall away because of, for, for, for whatever reason. And I said, that's part of the reason at, at, I remember at second city, there's been previous leaders here who were trying to find like, Oh, let's find the word to call what we do. And I'm like, no, the minute you <laughs> you make a term out of it, it's going to sink it. You know, we're, we teach improvisation. That's, 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 it's play. It's, it's creativity. It's innovate. Any of those other words you tie to it, but like, let's not find a term. We find a term. It's over. Mm. <laughs> so interesting. 
Yeah. So interesting. All right. Yeah, I could talk to you guys forever. Uh, but, yeah, yeah. Oh, I uh, want to. I want to uh, talk to you forever. Yeah, Jordan, you, you've you not been on the podcast before, and we do ask our guests who haven't been on to share a yes and story. Sure. Um, do you have one for us? I mean, you've been yes anding this whole time, so I appreciate that. Uh, so as Scott was saying, <laughs> yes and has just so become authentically integrated into my identity. I think it's so brilliant, and I try to model it for folks. In my world, I work with physicians and clinicians in healthcare, and I think the biggest sort of false dichotomy that I'm working in, and this could be applied to multiple levels of society, but it's this systemic drivers of burnout and dissatisfaction within our healthcare system versus the individual approaches, doing things like positive interventions and the practices that are in our book. And what I what I teach my students, what I talk to my patients about, what I talk to my colleagues about is that we have to yes and this problem. It's not that approaching our own well-being and taking charge and figuring out where we're autonomous somehow absolves our systems from mm-hmm. not caring for us. It's that we we have to be well and then hold our systems accountable. That perhaps when we are doing the best job we can to take care of ourselves, being as robust as possible, then we can actually be the change in the system and we can do more advocacy and actually figure out some of these systems-based problems. So I think when it comes to that like system versus individual tension, and this could be in regards to racial justice, all forms of social justice, that we must care for ourselves so that, and that we can hold our systems accountable. I, I, I absolutely love that. Both things can be true. And, 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 and we constantly have to go between them, right? It's not, yep. like the work isn't done ever. Um, and I think that right. because that's true, it's easier to ignore it. It's, it's the default. It's just easier if I don't, I don't deal. It's, it's like, easier no. to say, this is their problem. This is not a me yeah. problem. This is a them problem. And yeah. it's really all of our, it's all of our opportunity. Scott, you want to guess on that? Oh boy. Um, I just, I, I'm mesmerized because I, I, um, I, I've been saying this to my students, um, uh, because I, you know, I teach at Barnard College, it's a very social justice oriented college, and I learn a lot from my students, and, uh, I love their passion for wanting to change these systemic issues. And so I always get, you know, first class, you know, it's like science of living well, like, but why would you even teach anything about, you know, psychology when there's so much we have to address, you know, um, and I go, yes. And <laughs> yeah. mm-hmm. um, I love that you all are so passionate about m- changing the world, making the world a better place, changing these systemic structures. And guess what? I'm here to help support you in that mission by equipping you with the healthiest state of mind and healthiest, uh, most resilient way of dealing with, with uh, challenges along that path, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, and when I say that, they're like, okay. <laughs> Good. I'm glad. I mean, cause it, I, I, I'm very lucky. I've got some very dear friends who do a lot of important activist work and they're, they're not, they're not online doing it. They're doing it. Mm-hmm. Um, and they are pure joy. Yes. They, 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 they laugh. Uh, they are committed to each other. We hug each other when we see each other. It, it, it's 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 like, and they're doing the hard work that I'm not doing. That because that's number one job. In particular, I'm thinking of my friend Ajahn Poo, who is just like a glorious human being. I just like I can't. I can't, and and all the people she works with, the Caring Cross Generations and Super Majority, all that. They're like they're great humans, and they and they do. Mm. <clears throat> they they are interested in talking to everyone, um, you know. And I think that they. What, and I really, this is a very good book. And it's funny because I, it's hard sometimes when with handbooks in terms of interviewing authors, but you do a really nice job of like, no, let's play with these ideas, these rich concepts. And then, oh, this is how you might apply it in your, in, in your life. So, um, hundred percent. Yeah. I wanted you know. to plug someone else as well. Um, Rhonda McGee. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, wrote the book, the inner work, the inner work of racial justice, healing ourselves and transforming our communities through mindfulness. If you haven't had her on your podcast yet, I would love to make the intro. Uh, if, if you're, if you're interested. Yeah, um, but, um, uh, yeah, it's just, it, 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 she's, she's, she's so joyous and, um, and is deeply committed to, uh, to racial justice, but also helping people, uh, lead from a place of of love and yeah. um and compassion genuine compassion um 
um, and mindfulness. And, um, and I, 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 I see that as a big yes end you know, to be able to integrate, integrate all those things together is only going to make the world more net positive. Uh, the book is called Choose Growth, a workbook for transcending trauma, fear, and self-doubt. Scott and Jordan, thank you for coming on the show. Oh, thank you, Kelly. Thanks so much. The Getting the Yes And podcast is produced by The Second City and WGN Radio. We are supported at The Second City by Mike Farinaccio and Colleen Fahey. Our show is produced by Andrew Harris at WGN. The music that you hear at the beginning and end of the podcast is by Jukebox the Ghost. If you're interested in knowing more about The Second City, you can log on to secondcity.com or email us at works at secondcity.com. Survive